You are listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello, hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David, his music, his friendships, his influence, his legacy. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and today my guest is Brad Kyle. Brad was the music director at the University of Houston radio station in 1975 when he was invited by RCA to interview David as he promoted his debut album with the company, The Higher They Climb, The Harder They Fall. Brad and I talk about the interview, how he found David at a new and exciting creative period in his life. It is one of the most relaxing interviews David ever gave. You can hear the interview in this podcast and thank you for downloading this episode. Remember to click on the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from so you will be the first to know when new episodes are released. Here is my conversation with Brad Kyle. It's lovely to see you, Brad. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Louise, and it's great to be here. Know very little about you, and my listeners probably won't know very much, so why don't you um, treat this like a blind date and tell me who you are and where you come from? Oh, well, treat it like a blind date. I better order a drink. Uh, Well, I do have my coffee, and it's usually a mix of decaf and uh, light roast, so this is my mixed drink. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. In 1955, I was born. So as we talk about David, uh, I'm, I'm five years younger than he. So we're going to get to his interview eventually. And I was 20 in 1975. He was 25. I think before we talk about any like mega pop superstar, I need to start talking about the Beatles when I saw them on Ed Sullivan, the Ed Sullivan show. As it happened, I was eight years old in February of 1964 and changed my life. And I know David, he certainly was influenced. I think uh, that's common knowledge now that his main influences, besides the heavy metal he played in uh, garage bands in the late 60s when he played guitar pre-Partridge. He was a fan of the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Because even in my interview, he said he was um, influenced by southern california sounds including of course the beach boys and seeing the beatles is what informed my uh long-term lifelong passion for songs songwriting classic pop songs harmonies melodies the whole bit and what was fascinating at eight years old first of all that i cared about music at eight having formerly been a teacher and taught that age of kids i know that they're really not that into music that much, unless whatever their older siblings share with them or whatever. But I was just fascinated by the look, the sound, and that what eventually became a pop culture phenomenon. And that's what I keyed into. So I started buying in like the mid-60s all your teen magazines, 16 Flip, Teen Beat, Tiger Beat, even though I was a, a, a male, male of the species, and I know this was a, an era of mostly girls, and it didn't bother me because fellow boys growing up always you know, hated groups like the Beatles because they got all the girls and they were good looking and they were famous and popular. So there was a natural jealousy. But I just found it fascinating from a pop cultural standpoint of the massiveness 
the hugeness. And I love watching the interplay of, okay, here's an artist doing something, writing songs, singing, recording. And it goes beyond that into, oh my gosh, they're in magazines and newspapers. They're like famous. It started to explode for me. Now, the thing that really helped me grow in my love of music was the fact that my dad was in radio. He was selling commercial airtime at the local CBS radio affiliate in Houston. So he would bring home on a weekly basis free records. Now I know you read, and I've, I've dropped a lot of this stuff in my articles on Substack that I know you, you read uh, Louisa's a subscriber, happily so. But uh, no, I appreciate you being there because I think it helps uh, color in uh, some of why I like what I like musically and again in, in pop culture. So he would bring home free albums from Capitol Records. So I got all the, the new Beatle albums as they were coming out, promo items, promo albums. And I got to learn more about music free. I was, you know, as I, in the late 60s, I was in junior high. And I had, I was, I love the monkeys. There again, you've got, you know, uh, freshly scrubbed uh, pop music makers with uh, professional songwriters crafting tunes that are catchy. And I loved that. And I would read about them in the teen magazines. And it was great. And that's how I grew up loving music. And I was even a fan of David because, again, if it, it, he and the Partridge family and their work on TV in the early 70s fit right into what I was following and really enjoying all the way up to that point in the first place. Beatles, Monkeys, British Invasion Bands, Kinks, Who, uh, all of those, on into the Monkeys and then the Partridge family and, um, and appreciating David and his talent that, as I know we've discussed and I've seen online, I mean, so many people misunderstand David's uh, talent, and we'll get into talking about that. But uh, I was in radio, so I followed my dad's footsteps. So in when I graduated high school in 73 in Houston, I went to North Texas State, worked on their radio station for about a year, took a couple of classes. Uh, then I moved back to Houston to attend for a year uh, the University of Houston took virtually no classes. Um, I was music director of KUHF, the University of Houston radio station, and had a three-hour daily shift. And that's like right in 1975. And uh, so that brings us to the point where I first met David. It's very musically influenced. In fact, my dad had 20,000. My brother and I grew up with 20, surrounded by 20,000 LPs and 78s, mostly jazz. So thankfully, I had the curiosity to take my rock albums, put them aside, and occasionally walk into this custom-made cabinetry, wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling with these 20,000. I always say, it's a wonder my brother and I didn't catch PVC poisoning, <laughs> contract it, you know. But I would go in and look, who's this Miles Davis guy? I wonder what he's selling. Let me put that on. Or who's this Count Basie in Duke Ellington? So I grew up with a love of jazz, even though I, even though I'm a child of rock and roll and the 60s and all of that rock stuff, starting with the Beatles. But I do have a, a love and appreciation for Sinatra, Bennett, and all the classic jazz people, Ella, uh, Duke, Count, all those guys as well. Could you see or can you look back now and see the influence 
that that music had on the Beatles, the Stones, Presley, and modern-day artists. Well, and that's what's fascinating, too, because uh, look at the Beatles. I'm the only... And John and Paul did not know they were world-class songwriters in 1956, 7, 8, whenever they formed the Silver Beatles, and they just wanted to, you know, pull the birds. They wanted to get guitars and play music to pull the birds. So they played covers. And they played covers, and this is what filled most of their first, if not also second album, American R&B standards. As an eight-year-old listening to those early albums, I didn't know from that. All I know is, okay, here's the band called The Beatles. I saw Ed Sullivan. Here they are with an album. I guess they're, I didn't know from songwriting. So, I mean, I'm sure I didn't think that. I just went, here's this band I saw on TV. Here they are on their record. They're playing this music. I really like it. But what fascinates me about John and Paul, they can't possibly have known, maybe somebody's documented it in a book somewhere, they can't possibly have known they would be world-class songwriters. It only came about to, you know, we're going to have to come up with some originals here. We're signed here to uh, EMI, Parlophone in the UK. And what do we do now for material? I know, let's write some sounds, shall we? And I guess that's as easy as it happened. And, oh, look, we're world-class, you know, once in a century, uh, incredible songwriters. Now, you might have seen my George Harrison article about a, a week or so ago, probably from a songwriting standpoint, over the decades, he's emerged as my favorite Beatle. When the Beatles were together, I guess it was Paul. And as I learned more about Paul and his vast influences of music that he had from uh, American Broadway, Great White Way, uh, British music hall music. He had an incredible, uh, a, a vast array of musical influences that he had that he brought to the table. John, not so much. Um, I think he was more politically oriented, uh, more serious, but I enjoyed Paul's cheekiness, I think, as you would call it, and I could relate to especially what I found out to be his uh, vast knowledge of music that went before. And that's something else I appreciate is anybody's influence, whether they're an artist, a songwriter, whatever they're doing now, if you can find out about what their influences are personally, you'll learn a lot more about their music. I always say that about the Ramones. No one would ever think that the Ramones uh, who everyone, you know, and yes, I guess rightly said they're punk rock, but they loved the Phil Spector records, the girl group records of the early 60s. They loved the Beach Boys. They loved the Beatles. If you know that, and I didn't even have to be told that when the Ramones first came out, and there's a lot of bands like that, listen to how they're sounding. I can, I bet I can guess they love the Beatles, Beach Boys. I didn't guess the Spector part of it, but when I heard it, I said, yeah, that fits too. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's the influences and all that that's, that's really key. Do you think your path with your father's involvement in radio was going to lead you down that path of working in music? Well, here's the thing. Um, yes, most definitely, because I know I share my dad's love of collecting, because I had amassed myself about 2,000 albums, mostly comps, mostly promos, because what I got from him, and then when I started in radio in the mid-70s, I got my own promos. But definitely, but I didn't really have a career, and except for 
four or so years in radio, two college, two pro stations, one in Houston, one in Baton Rouge, at a couple of FM progressive rock stations, 75 to 77. Then I get into the record business on the retail end. So uh, I was working at record stores in Houston and L in L.A. I moved to L.A. from Houston in 1980 and was still working at record stores there. But I was a youth minister in L.A. for a few years after I got my bachelor's. I was went back to school at about 30 in the mid-80s and then was a teacher in the 90s and early 2000s. So I did not use all of that. I wish now, in retrospect, I had because now I love writing about baseball and music, my two greatest loves in life, and might have actually even been a, a, a decent baseball player, but did not have the self-confidence. I might have been a lead singer. I was lead singer in a rock band in Houston in my high school years for two or three years, much like David. He was in a high school garage band. I was in a high school garage band. I could have been his lead singer if we'd have known each other and lived in the same city, but I was lead singer in a rock band in Houston. It never occurred to me because at, in at my age and in that day in the early 70s, and I guess coupled with my insecurities, lack of self-confidence, it never occurred to me as much as I loved being a, a front man, a lead singer. Again, in the early 70s, I had long hair. Uh, you know, I, like Alice Cooper and David Bowie, I tried to mess with mascara and eye makeup just because that was what you did and made a mess of my face with white goop. I, I, it was might have been cold cream. It, I, it should have been stage makeup, but what did I know? Just trying to fit in. But had I been given anything that came close to encouragement, I might have could have done that and then been like a Lenny Kay or even a Patti Smith, who are both rock scribes as well as musicians. So I kind of would like to go back and try all that again. And that's why all the time that I was a youth minister and a teacher, I encouraged kids to whatever your passion is, you might be able to make a career out of this, career out of this. So whatever it is you do well, and I try to, you know, in the time that I had, like if I'm teaching for nine months out of the year, I got to know the kids pretty well. And I can pretty much know even at nine and 10 years old, they might have a talent and a passion in this, that, or the other. And I would make sure to encourage them because I didn't get that. Now, I didn't need that. I'm sure there are a lot of artists who, uh, became successful, at least in their craft, if not famous, successful in their craft without others behind them pushing them. But I think they would have had to have a stronger self-confidence than, than I had in that arena. Because now I love writing about music. I love writing about baseball. Yeah. It's interesting that you mention about the lack of self-confidence. So many actors, actresses, musicians, 90% of them admit that they are really quite shy. And they go on to on stage and they become this whole different person. Well, and I can certainly relate to that because when I was uh, in my rock band in the early 70s as lead singer, once I hit the stage, I'm going, oh my, I got this. You know, I felt truly in my element and uh, we had posters made up and, you know, I was like the front man. I would wear find uh, dollar things at uh, thrift shops of silver lame shirts and, you know, I'd play up the part. But there are so many, as, as you say, you're right, performers in whatever venue, movies, TV, recording, performing. Oh, yeah, off stage. That is their uh, sanctuary. Being on stage and performing is their sanctuary. And 
that's where they can be themselves and where they feel their comfort level out there in the world. And you're right, we can make a list of all those people that, you know, if you meet them or even in interviews, they will admit that, that they're just frighteningly, cripplingly shy and uh, retiring and uncomfortable in the world. But put them in front of a mic, in front of a camera, and that's when you see the real them, the true them. Or put them on a sports field as well. I mean, how many baseball players and American footballers and basketball players do you see them perform? Because in many ways, on the court or on the pitch is exactly the same stage as for an artist. So do you think it's important for us to have idols in music and sport? Wow, what a huge question. To answer your question, yes, but then there's a comma and a but. You just have to make sure, and if if you have kids yourself or you're teaching kids or around kids, you ought to let them know that uh, they are not the be-all and end-all. Feel free to look up to them. Feel free to be uh, led and empowered by them, but also realize that uh, they are uh, people too. They have their own foibles and their own insecurities, and you've got to follow your path and do whatever it is you do on your own. But it's human nature to have people to look up to. What's interesting uh, about that whole, as Joni Mitchell said, star maker machinery, as big as it can make you, David's first post-Partridge album, the higher they climb, the harder they fall. And that's, he knows, I mean, if anybody knew about the star maker machinery, it made him a star. It also chewed him up and spat him out. And that's what, so I'm, you know, getting a little verklempt right now. I feel so sorry for the life that he had to live. I read his autobiography, I think it was in the 90s, and it was just completely the first time I'd heard about the sadness he felt in the long time yearning he had to be accepted by Dad Jack. And uh, he never got that because, unfortunately, uh, Jack's insecurity and immaturity would not, did not allow him to love David as David wanted and needed and to accept David and his talent. All David wanted was for Dad to be proud of him, and he couldn't give that to him. And I feel so sorry since having read that, uh, that he never got that, and bless his heart, you know, to have not been able to feel that because he was yearning for that. Jack couldn't give it to him. Do you think he was constantly amazed? Was he surprised at just how many people loved him? Well, yeah, but I think in time he realized that was kind of an empty love. I'm sure he appreciated the adulation, and as an artist, as someone who sold uh, merchandise, records, TV shows, whatever he was uh, selling, if you will, in his career, he was happy to have to be popular and famous in that way. But there again, it's hollow and it's shallow if you're not getting the love and acceptance and pride from the people that you love most dearly and want it uh, the most from the, the most the, the most badly. You know, you want that really badly. And if you don't get that, I think that that leaves a hole in one's heart. And I suppose that leaves you to keep searching for it in whatever ways as you get older to search for that, whether it's in your craft, your art, or extraneous other things that people have sometimes gotten into trouble with as far as addictions and whatnot, you know. And I I read his autobiography as well, 
could it be forever? I I was left feeling sad. I just thought, that's so sad. I think he was dying for a hug. I think he just could have used a hug to, you know, to help uh, that kind of warmth and intimacy that he didn't get from daddy. And I hope that all of the fans' love for him, he felt that hug through the airwaves, through, you know, the fans' love. I hope he did. I mean, you will, you will find the Elvis film compelling from that point of view. It was an amazing, apart from Austin Butler doing the most incredible representation of Elvis, which you would think would be impossible. He actually nailed it on so many levels. Well, and there's an interview, because I, I don't really know much about Austin Butler and his past to lead up to this role. But good night, nurse. What a, you know, what a task to undertake. And my brother was an actor and even wrote a play. And so I know the the struggles that it took to have him not only write it, but put it on its legs and uh, put it on stage. And that was back in the 80s. But I mean, I, uh, and that was an enormous undertaking to become another character. And like I say, without knowing much about Austin Butler's past, I got to see what led up to that magnificent performance that I'm hearing he gave. David certainly had that visual impact. Do you think, and again, you know, I'd like to, to talk about your very interesting conversation with him. Do you think he was underappreciated and that people really couldn't look beyond the idolatry and see more than just a pretty face? Well, yeah, I mean, it's he's pigeon. He was pigeonholed, most definitely, and a bit hamstrung and uh, handcuffed and whatever analogies you could use, word pictures. And that's what ultimately the sad part of his career was. The good news, though, is he didn't just chuck it all. He kept writing and recording. And the people who can understand that and go and find it and listen to it will be amazed. David, for the TV show, he was singing songs that professional songwriters, uh, amazingly talented tunesmiths, were hired to create those songs. So yes, he was singing and performing, but by the same time, it probably wasn't music that he loved, because he goes from being in a garage band in the late 60s, playing guitar, loving Hendrix and Zeppelin and all that hard stuff, to this stuff. But is that the kind of music you really want to be singing to use your talents for, guitar and voice? Likely not. But it's your job. You do it. We all have jobs that we have to kind of show up and punch in, and we do our jobs. And that's why that first RCA album in 75 is so noteworthy. And what I found amazing, even at the time, I don't think I questioned him on this, but again, I was 20. But I was amazed, okay, David, here's your first post-Partridge album right out the gate. You can do anything you want to do. And why it didn't sound like Black Sabbath or the Rolling Stones or something kind of took me by surprise, but frankly, I'm glad it didn't. Because, and here's, to answer your question, I'll answer your question this way. Here's who knew David's talent. Everyone in the industry. He could have worked, he could have called anybody. And they would have said yes, not but because, ooh, the famous David Cassidy just called me. You know, that ain't it. It's the fact that they knew he had chops. They knew he had a voice. They knew he could play guitar. They knew he could write. But uh, 
Bruce Johnston and a couple other Beach Boys and Beach Boy adjacent, Jerry Beckley uh, from America, you know, they were happy to help them out. And I know they would all agree that they come out sounding great thanks to David and the accompaniment and just playing with that great musician. So to answer your question, the general public, absolutely not. You know, Wikipedia and everybody on the internet slots David, bubblegum, it's pop, teen fandom, and that's all they know. And you really have to dig to find the, uh, the really good stuff from David himself, not somebody else's material that he's kind of churning out for the TV and um, record industry machine. Take me to the events that led up to you meeting him in the midsummer of 1975. Well, I can't remember being asked directly by an RCA rep. I think the station manager at the University of Houston radio station, where I was music director, comes to me one day and says, the RCA guy, the local regional RCA rep, says David Cassidy is coming to a downtown Houston uh, penthouse as our music director. you want to go and interview him? I said, yeah, sure. I'm sure I was the only one at the station. I was the most appropriate one to go as the music director, but uh, I find it hard to believe anybody else really would have been interested and done the job that I think it needed to be done. And I say that because of the half a dozen or so media types in the room, I was the only one who didn't ask about the Partridge Family. I knew why he was there to tub thump the new RCA album of his own stuff of the music he wanted to now present. So I went, I wish I just wish I had a camera. I took, a, as you know, I took a reel to reel uh, tape recorder from back in the day in 75, probably a TAC. I think it probably had a cover and a handle and carrying it to there. And David had no problem with me setting it on top of the coffee table in front of myself. And then he was to my left in a chair. I was on a couch next to some other writer or media type. And I asked him, you know, do you mind if I record? Now, I had nothing that I was going to do with the interview. In fact, the microphone was two or three feet away from him. It was nowhere near him until the end of the tape, at the end of the interview, when I wanted him to do a station ID. And he did two or three of them. Hi, this is David Cassidy, and you're listening to, uh, I think my name at the time was Brad Davis online. I changed my name several times, um, I guess, to stay ahead of the law. But... Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he did them very graciously, and uh, and I would put them back at the uh, at the station. I transferred them to we had four track cartridges. They were the size of eight track cartridges, but they were four track carts as we call them abbreviatedly. And I would put these uh, IDs on cart and play them like once an hour, probably leading into one of the uh, softer songs on the RCA album because the afternoon shift I had on the U of H radio station was a kind of a soft rock, not easy listening, but any of the ballads or soft rock things on his album would have fit right in. Yeah, well, that's what how it happened. And um, what I find really incredible is the discovery. Well, let me just lead up to, so during the interview, one of the, the highlights of about a 35 minute interview for me was somebody else asking about a single off the album. And one of the singles, if not the first single off David's Higher They Climb album was Get It Up For Love, a song written by L.A. songwriter Ned Doheny, who about a year or two later, Southern California guy, I'm sure David knew him, 
uh, recorded an album for Columbia. But it was only about a year or two after David and a couple other people recorded Get It Up For Love. Now, David started to say in the interview that, yeah, uh, that is the, the single off the album, Get It Up For Love. And then David says, there was somebody else on RCA uh, a little while, a few months ago, a guy with three names, I can't remember who it was, who recorded it. Well, I had his album, that guy with three names. In fact, I had the single, so I knew who it was. Now, at the moment, I'm feeling like I'm on jeopardy because I've got to now buzz in with the answer pretty quick or the conversation turns to something else. But the the domino of events that happened because I remembered the name of the guy with three names, I go, Stephen Michael Schwartz? And David goes, that's it. So in the article that I wrote, it says, yeah, me and David Cassidy working together. All right. So... <laughs> So Stephen Michael Schwartz was 20 years old in 1974 when he recorded his first album for RCA Records. Now, in the article of my interview with David, I list there are so many things that David and Stephen shared in common. Uh, young, good looking singer, songwriter, guitar player, uh, you know, uh, RCA Records recorded Get It Up For Love, uh, the same song. Uh, so after I wrote the article about the, my interview with David, and I wrote that article, and I think, uh, published it on Substack in 19, uh, in February of this year. So after I wrote it, I decided to do a web search for Stephen Michael Schwartz, because after that RCA album in 74, his first at age 20, I had no idea what happened to Stephen Michael Schwartz. Sure enough, he's got his own website, stephenmichaelschwartz.com. And it turns out for two, three, four decades, Stephen was a kingpin and a major player in the children's music lane in a trio called the Parachute Express and then Solo. So I look on his website and he's got a contact button, a little drop down where you can write and ask for, you know, I guess he still does personal appearances if you want to book him for a a show for a children's birthday party or something and wrote his own songs and played them. So I go, Stephen, you don't know me. I'm Brad Kyle and I write on Substack front row and backstage. Your name came up twice in the last 45 years. Once in 1975 when I interviewed David Cassidy and the second just now when I published this article about that interview. And I sent him a link to the article. He read it. And all I wanted was a quick interview to, you know, tell me about that 74 RCA album when you were 20 and that will be done with it. Stephen has been so gracious now to give his life story. Periodically, we've got about a dozen, 15 or 16 articles in Stephen Michael Schwartz's own words as he write about, writes about his time in the mid 70s record business with RCA being on the same label as David, uh, not only David Cassidy, but Elvis Presley. In fact, in 74, in August, RCA asked their new uh, artist, uh, Stephen Michael Schwartz, to, if, they want, if he wanted to see Elvis in Vegas at the Las Vegas Hilton, August 74, a famous two, three, four week stint that Elvis did. And so Stephen went, that's an article we wrote, it's under uh, uh, our little running uh, uh, short story for Stephen Michael Schwartz called Schwartz Stories. And the first Schwartz story is about his going, seeing, and meeting Elvis 
at the Las Vegas Hilton in 74. That's an amazing story to what Stephen brings to uh, my front row and backstage uh, Substack page is his life story that he's been gracious to share with us on my Substack. And it's amazing that the artists, the quality of artists that he has played with, met, hung around with, uh, and written songs with. We just did uh, dropped on my Substack a uh, series of about half a dozen songs that Stephen co-wrote with the likes of Jeff Berry. This is all late 70s songwriting collaborations. Listeners out there may not know Jeff Berry is still with us, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Songwriter Hall of Famer, and he's in his mid-80s now, but he's a co-writer of such songs as Dudu Run Run, Be My Baby, uh, Chapel of Love, mega, you know, uh, songwriting legend. Uh, and Stephen co-wrote a song with David Pomerantz, who had two hits that he wrote with poor Barry Manilow, trying to get the feeling again, and the old songs. These songs as demos are on my Substack articles that talk about these songwriting collaborations. And the Jeff Berry song he co-wrote with Jeff Berry, the demo is actually produced by Jeff Berry. That's mind-blowing to me. <laughs> you know, because he's a rock and roll legend and Stephen wrote a song with Jeff Berry and the demo's produced. So if you're a Jeff Berry completist going back to his Phil Spector days in the early 60s, you don't have this Jeff Berry produced demo that, of a song that Stephen and Jeff wrote. I find Stephen's story fascinating because they wanted to promote him as a teen idol, to put him in that little pocket. And he seemed to have a certain degree of intelligence and foresight about him that I'm not going to go down this route. I know where this is going to take me and I want to be recognized for who I am. That's what inspired me so much about his career, ultimately. When I find, found out that RCA, four songs into album number two, uh, cut him from the contract because the first album didn't sell as much as they would have. He could have just chucked it all and become an insurance salesman or a shoe salesman, but he stayed true to his talent and created a lane for himself. And in fact... Just before recording for RCA, he had finished a couple of years at an L.A. Uh, community college in theater and early childhood education. What better two uh, subjects to take if you're going to be a performer in the children's music lane than, though, than theater and early childhood? But to get to Stephen, and I asked him about this several times, at 20, and if you look at the pictures taken for his album, uh, the art director and the photographer took pictures, mostly black and white. I think they're all but one, black and white. And he's not smiling on a single one of them. So if they were pitching him to the, the teen market, he wasn't all bright and shiny like David, you know. They were pitching him as sort of sullen, which his dark look sort of, I guess, played to that. He considered himself a serious artist, like one of his early heroes, Jackson Brown. But... What I found interesting, uh, and if you're 20, you're not going to say no to anything. He did get the calls, and he did do interviews and photo sessions with your Tiger Beats and Flips and uh, 16 magazines of the day. And I had him searching through his trunk in the attic for a whole bunch of stuff, and he's been really generous with a lot of exclusive photos from back in the day. But sadly, we don't have any uh, copies of, like, the teen magazines that he might have been in from back in the day with the interviews and photos and stuff. 
But I wanted to get that out about Stephen because he's terribly impressive to again have found a way to use his talent, even though it didn't work out in the in the pop uh, like it did for David. He's one of the hidden gems of the industry, right? Well, here again, the industry knows Stephen Michael Schwartz is a top-notch songwriter and singer. And I don't know if he's done sessions or stuff, but again, he's been busy with the, the, the Parachute Express, 80s and 90s, and I think into the early 2000s, and then doing solo children's. I've been a performer, you know, he didn't need anybody else. He was his own entertainer in the trio and then by himself. Do you think that is indicative of the industry, that they try to pigeonhole certain people because of the way they look, the way they sound? And if you don't play the game, your career can go be gone in a puff of smoke. Well, definitely. And um, I'm going to try to think of this one artist I um, wrote about or heard about in the last week or two. But yeah, most definitely. And that's, I guess there again, that's human nature, because again, at the end of the day, the record company has to sell you. So at some point, you're the artist, you, you write, you sing, you play, you record. Now it's a product. Now what you have is a product that now the record company has to sell, not unlike a book. You know, you, you write a book, you know, you know, you're the artist, you, you're the writer, you wrote the book, and now your publisher has to uh, somehow sell it. So they've got to pick the photo to put on the cover. They've got to uh, catalog some way. They've got to come up with some sort of genre in which to put you. And that's what happens in uh, the record business too, most definitely. So that's why there are genre labels artists routinely hate genre labels because they hate being pigeonholed. I don't like using them either. I just got into this whole uh, synth wave, synth pop thing the last couple of days with a band called The Midnight, who seem to be terribly impressive and proficient and really evocative of 70s and 80s songwriting in a song particularly uh, called Heartbeat. And, uh, but you you come into these uh, micro genre labels like synth pop, synth wave, outrun, uh, and there's a couple others, all for this synth pop lane, and it's mind-boggling all the all these holes that they want to put you into, which are ultimately restrictive. But yes, but uh, Stephen, you know, wanted to be that serious artist, and uh, at tw- I don't think RCA quite knew what to do with him because he certainly wasn't producing songs that were, you know, pop heavy. He had some catchy songs and some good songs and some deep songs. I would have loved to see what they would have could have done. Excuse me, for album number two. First of all, would there be color pictures all around? Would there be smiling pictures? And just what could they would they have done? But when you had this fascinating interview with David, which I'm going to run at the end of the podcast so people can listen and hear what it's it's all about. He said to you that he wasn't doing what he wanted to do until he signed for RCA and was given the freedom uh, as an artist. So he was then reaching a new demographic. And he said to you that he could not go out and sing the old songs anymore. They were not him. They didn't represent him as he was today, 1975. He wanted to do new material and be accepted. How did you find his enthusiasm and energy and passion at that time? 
Well, I thought it was great. I mean, I, I think uh, it's clear to hear on the tape that he's glib, he's happy, he's off the cuff, he's offhand. Um, it's interesting, and it's, um, make sure I don't drift too far afield, but this just hit me. Early on in the recording, he mentions David Bowie, and there's another pop cultural icon that's, you know, certainly worth studying from the standpoint of how he impacted pop culture and media. But, um, yeah, no, he seemed very excited about uh, the new direction, and even uh, your listeners will... Uh, We'll hear when uh, Bill House calls another RCA artist and uh, a fellow songwriter with David and uh, player. But he seemed really excited about moving forward. And the obvious answer, and that question didn't come from me because I knew better than to ask that question, are you going to do any of the old song? It, that would just would never occur to me to ask that. And so I don't know who that came from, but it wasn't me because it's obvious he's there to move forward. And he certainly now saw this. I'm sure he would speak kindly of that, the Partridge era. But again, the flip side of that joyous, profitable uh, uh, coin is the fact that it was very confining. And he couldn't find himself as an artist because he was trying to please two corporations, Screen Gems Television, ABC, and a third, Bell Records. And your ball and chain to those corporations, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do as an artist. So I think he was uh, probably giddy. But he was very, very uh, congenial in the room, and it was re very relaxed. And uh, it was actually fun to be around. Like I say, I wish I had pictures. I wish I could remember what he was wearing and the colors. Oh. But I don't. But I do, I do remember being there and the general visage of just the room set up and there's David to my left. He spoke to you about recording I Write the Songs, which Bruce Johnston wrote. Have you ever heard Bruce, Johnst Bruce Johnston's version? Oh, yeah. Oh, because Bruce came out with his yeah. solo album about a year or two after his, that. Um, yeah, on his Go Going Public album. And it's a it's a totally different arrangement. It's more piano-based without all the huge production behind it. Bruce Johnston produced, as well as wrote, of course, David's uh, arrangement of I Write the Songs. Mm. And I never question a final production because, first of all, looking back in hindsight, if we're using Barry Manilow's bombastic uh, version, and I'm not going to denigrate that either because... Uh, I haven't written the ultimate Barry Manilow article, but if and when I do, it will be focusing on his arrangement skills. I think if Barry were sitting here right now, he'd say, yeah, my biggest talent is arranging. I saw about three or four consecutive tours of his in the late 70s of Manilow, and every time something would be different arrangement-wise, this song, that song, that hit, this hit, uh, three or four of them might be now merged into a medley, and I found that terribly fascinating. And because he would also tell you he was not a, a, a born singer, nor was he a comfortable performer. He was sitting behind a piano backing Bette Midler in the early 70s. And when he had to become a performer, it was hard for him to come out from behind the piano. But I love Bruce Johnston's production on David's I Write the Songs. It was what it was. David, uh, and I love the dreamy quality of it. 
and because it was a Bruce Johnston song, Loving the Beach Boys as I do, um, and a production, I respect it for that. And David must have loved the way that sounded when Bruce did his. But I think that song can have uh, a quiet, softer reading than Manilow's emotional and stereotypical modulation key change you know there again that's that's like his signature every song's got to modulate which is fine that has its place in classic songwriting i just wrote about a song a couple days ago that midnight song uh heartbeat which has a modulation i'm going to first of all if an if a 2022 song has a modulation or a bridge and written like that uh, you know that to me is amazing that kids these days can can write like that I loved all those I Write the Songs, and I'll say it again, Bruce Johnston wrote I Write the Songs. Because I'm kind of a little peeved at Barry. I don't hear him in concert very often saying who wrote those songs. And I'll tell you, it will bring Stephen Michael Schwartz back to it. Stephen Michael Schwartz wrote a Christmas song, Merry Christmas, Wherever You Are. Barry Manilow sang that song. He's never recorded, but Stephen wrote it. But Barry sang it on at least one Christmas TV special from back in the day. That story is soon to come uh, from Stephen about that song and how it came to be that Barry sang it. And it's on YouTube. You can find it. Barry Manilow, Merry Christmas, wherever you are. And he's got a couple, a few seconds before the song, a few seconds after where he's saying stuff. Not once does he mention the songwriter's name. I'm shaking my finger at the screen. Barry, yes. it wouldn't take him long to say written by Stephen Michael Schwartz. It wouldn't take them long. And that's just common courtesy for an artist. That's professional courtesy for an artist, I think. Where do you rate David's RCA albums? You said earlier that you felt he was underappreciated. The higher they climb, home is where the heart is. Getting it in the street, which was co-produced with Jerry Beckley. Do you think maybe people need, as you suggested earlier, need to be educated on what is underneath the image of David Cassidy to the wider public? Well, I think if anybody who uh, knew and liked David from his early 70s teen pop stuff, I think if you put a record on 75 onward and didn't tell them it was David Cassidy, they might not even know. They probably wouldn't recognize the song styling. They might not even recognize his voice. But I will say that an album that was released only in the UK, produced by Alan Tarney, and he is somebody that at the time I had become a fan of Alan Tarney as a writer and a producer because he was on A&M Records with another cat and their duo on A&M was called the Tarney Spencer Band. I can't remember, but they had a couple of minor hits here in the States. But Alan Tarney became a producer and produced at least one of David's albums. And I would tell anybody to maybe start there just simply because of Alan Tarney <clears throat> and his production style. I've always enjoyed, and your listeners and readers might want to go find the Tarney Spencer Band uh, and listen to them and discover the songwriting and production talents of Alan Tarney. People knew who David was as an artist. David knew who the good people were in the business, and he picked out the best songwriters, arrangers, players, and it's clear on his albums. You just look at, read the liner notes. Oh my God, he played with those people, you know, and those people respected him in kind. I think that's the most important message to take away. Do you think he'll ever get the recognition that his talent deserves? Uh, I'm just cynical enough to say no. 
and knowing what I know about the business. We're talking about, you know, bands like Jethro Tull and Judas Priest, I think, who you know, just comes around every year with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who still aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who should be, and clear arguments can be made for that. So I could certainly make the argument that David should belong, but man, that's a brick wall I just don't want to bang my head against because I know what their response is going to be. I can practically make the argument or imagine what their argument would be as to why not, as much as I could make the argument as to why they should. And he checks all the boxes. They just don't want to see the post-75 creative output that he did that was legitimate, serious, from his heart, and uh, no longer the puppet on the strings of uh, three major uh, megalomedia uh, monsters in the early 70s that he was with. But uh, sadly, no, it'll never happen just because that's the way it is. You know, we can't sit down all these musicians who played with David to ask them of how they were influenced and motivated to play with him and appreciated his talent, but by virtue of the fact that they appeared on his records, unashamedly, you know, they weren't embarrassed to show up with him and uh, either play in concert or play on records. They were happy to do so because they realized uh, what a talent he was, a great talent he was. Well, if we could convince the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tomorrow, and if the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame could say yes, bring David Cassidy in, they know that they would get blowback to the point where they've got now to go on some sort of massive PR campaign to defend that selection. That's the sad part. And that's the, the hill. And that ultimately is probably the reason they will always say no. It doesn't matter about the six, eight or ten influencers around the conference table at the R&R Hall, Hall of Fame. It's less about that than it's about how they would struggle to uh, think they had to defend their choice because I think they would perceive the public outcry, especially when there's so many bands and artists that certainly should be there that aren't. So, I mean, that's a, an annual argument that everybody has. <laughs> oh, yeah. What did you take away from your hour or so in David's company? Um, terribly sweet, awfully nice, uh, friendly. Um, I guess I wish I had been a little older than 20, because I think at 20, I was, you know, and obviously I, I, I flipped the fanboy switch off because I wanted to be professional and all that, and I think I did that. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, there's a lot of things. I would have loved to have just kibitzed with him for a couple hours, either alone or knowing I could have had that kind of time with maybe yeah. a couple other people in there, just to have time to uh, um, ask the kind of questions that he knew were off the record and talk about the things um, like that maybe you haven't heard in previous interviews about, because uh, we can't imagine, I once heard that, you know about the Beatles, those four Beatles, you can talk about being a rock band all you want, but those four people went through something no one else in history will ever be able to say they went through. And I'm talking about all the fan adoration, the publicity, the magazines, the hounding, the everything. And that's similar for David, because he had to be protected, he had to be surrounded, he had to be sequestered, you know, he, that has to have been hard for so, um, for so long a time. And that's just, uh, again, it's one of those things where the machine will raise you up, 
but the machine is also something that will probably chew you up and spit you out at some point in some way. And I think it's just very, very fortunate that David came out the back end of that. I'm, I'm guessing a better person, you know. Do you the only person on the planet to have seen both Judy Garland and the Sex Pistols? In the same lifetime. Concert in, in the same life. Well, I ain't met anybody else, but when you think about it. But you know what? And when you think about that, I saw uh, uh, the Supremes open for Judy Garland in 1965 at Houston's Astrodome. I was 10. My mom took me. And I'm sure I slept through most of it with my head on her lap. Nonetheless, I was in the building. But uh, when you think about Judy Garland, 1965, now jump ahead. How many years to see the Sex Pistols? Just 13, 13. But that seems like three lifetimes that would have separated Judy and the Sex Pistols, Judy and Johnny, Judy Garland, Johnny Rotten. Uh, but it was just 13 years, mind-blowing to think about. And at that time I was 23 and I saw the Sex Pistols went, uh, did a seven city tour, mostly the Southern United States. And I saw their San Antonio, Texas show. But, um, and of course have written about it on my Substack. But, uh, man, if there's somebody else who can say they saw Judy in concert and the Sex Pistols in concert, the same person in the same lifetime, I'd love to meet them because uh, I'm going to go ahead and keep claiming that until somebody proves me wrong. Tell me, of those that you have met and interviewed over the years, be it in sport or in music, tell me about the three who have had the largest impact on your life. Well, I think the most time I spent with any uh, rock and roll artist was uh, two weekends with the New York Dolls in 1973. Uh, the first weekend was in Houston, and they played two nights, a Friday and a Saturday night. And on Friday night after the show, uh, one of them might have been Sylvain. Sylvain says, you know, what can we do tomorrow in Houston Saturday on our day off? This is what I'll tell you what, there's this... Uh, Galleria, it's a shopping mall, three-story shopping mall with an ice skating rink in the center. Why don't you meet me there at noon? So I met the New York Dolls at the Galleria in Houston at noon that one Saturday in must have been September of 73. And uh, they were dressed in their stage dolls regalia. Uh, mothers were covering their children's eyes and scurrying away because, you know, the humanity. But that was a gas. I mean, again, here I am, 73. I'm 18. I'm a senior in high school. Actually, I'm my first year of college at North Texas State, and I come down to Houston to see that show. The next weekend, they're in Dallas. So I follow them back up to my college. Uh, North Texas State is just about 30 miles north of Dallas. And they played the weekend in Dallas at Gertie's, a club in Dallas and uh, saw them there. So, I mean, we were old buds at that time. Now, I asked Sylvain Sylvain, because Todd Rundgren, one of my favorites, whom I uh, met five years after that. So I asked Sylvain, what does the band think of Todd's production on your debut album? My grandmother could have done a better job. That's what Sylvain said. Now, it is documented that the Dolls hated originally Todd's production of their first album. But over time, they grew to love it more and more. Now, cut to 1978, I meet Todd Rundgren after his show in a Houston uh, hotel bar. Uh, maybe I was tipped off. How the hell he was? I knew he would be there anyway. Uh, and I've written about this too, but I'll give you the punchline. So the question was, do I tell Todd 
what Sylvain told me about his doll's first record production when I meet him? The answer is no, I didn't have, I couldn't. By then it might have been a moot point because by then he knew that he had their stamp of approval on over time, over his production. But uh, it's stuff like that, that, uh, you know, just kind of amazing kind of dumb luck and just uh, the interconnectivity that sometimes these artists have and uh, that I was lucky to just sort of happen. Because again, I felt sort of a kinship. I tell you about my insecurity and sort of not feeling all that open, but I had no problem uh, meeting them because I felt a kindred spirit. Yes, I was a singer, singer and uh, played the flute in my rock band, but, uh, you know, it, I thought nothing of going to meet these bands I would read about in Circus Magazine and Cream and Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy that I read about in the magazines. And uh, I'm happy about that, that I just felt no problem in going up to these people, even to the point of inviting Tom Robinson into my car in 1978. And uh, here he is, a worldwide recording artist, EMI Records, and I've got the guts to ask him to come with me to a show by a local Houston punk band called the Plastic Idols. Mm -hmm. And I asked Tom, do you want to go? Yeah, ask my people, go ask my manager, whomever. So I go ask him, and the guy says yes. 1978, I'm taking a worldwide recording artist in my car to another club in downtown Houston to go see a punk band who wanted to be at Tom's show that night. Tom got up on stage, picked up a spare guitar. They ran through a couple of Chuck Berry tunes. I was a hero for a week with my buddies in the Plastic Idols. But I mean, stuff like that. And as I, I wrote in my article, I go, can you imagine asking, going to see uh, Harry Styles and even thinking of asking him, yeah, can I could take Harry in my car and go to a club? It just wouldn't happen, you know? And the fact that anybody said yes to, uh, you know, this guy who later wrote songs with Peter Gabriel and uh, Elton John, Tom Robinson, that uh, I had him in my car, you know, and I'm taking him to this club. Wow. But that's that's just an example of what we said at the beginning, that this suit of armor appears, this new, different character appears. It gives you the confidence to do that. You're right. But also what helped was to uh, have gotten radio credentials. I could flash a card or oh, yeah. say that I'm with, you know, to get that entree in the first yes. place. But to have the guts to, to do some of the things I did, like uh, parade the New York Dolls through a, a, a shopping center in Houston or to take Tom Robinson to another gig in Houston, you know, it's, yes. uh, you're right. I had to step out yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and put that foot yeah. forward. And I met Sean Cassidy in a restaurant in the early 80s in L.A., and it must have been like 81 or 82. And we were just waiting for tables in the same restaurant. And I said hello to him. And I said, you know, about seven years ago, I interviewed your brother. Now, what's interesting is I knew somebody uh, who worked for Ruth Ahrens. Ruth Ahrens was Sean's and David's uh, manager. And uh, I knew a gal, Johnny Hartman, who worked for Ruth Ahrens. And um, was able to, I was able to get an autographed picture from Sean through her. Uh, but I think it was later on that I actually met Sean. Sean was oddly uh, large. You know, I mean, he had, of course, early 80s, he had sort of filled out a bit. He wasn't this real thin teen guy. And again, the, the tight white jumpsuit. But uh, as David was kind of 
um, unusually smallish, which you can sort of see on TV. Uh, Sean was uh, um, a little more filled out than I. But again, this was early '80s. You know, not huge or big or overweight or anything. Just you know, when you stand next to somebody, but he was about my height. I'm about six foot. I urge everyone to listen to or no, to read Stephen's story, which really should go into a, a form of a book. Oh, we've talked about that, you know, and hopefully that can that can that can be on the the tail end of all this when we're done. But yeah. um, and this is all in Stephen's words. So he yes. writes to me, sends them by email. I edit and format, put into paragraphs, you know, make it look pretty, and that's what you read. But those are his words. So he is happy to get this off his chest. He's wanted to do this, and this is again the amazing lightning bolt that happened in May of '75 when I interviewed David Cassidy. Stephen's name comes up. That didn't have to happen. I didn't also happen to have been invited to go interview David. Then Stephen's name comes up, and then I get a hold of Stephen. He's wanting to tell his story. I've got a venue to do that. It's a very salutary tale from him. Be careful what you wish for. True that. And also follow your dream, because that's what's ultimately uh, inspiring about Stephen's story. The RCA uh, pop or rock thing didn't work out after one album. You still find a lane in which you can drive. And that's what he did for decades. Well, I've enjoyed being in Top Gear with you for the last hour or so. Louise, it's been my pleasure. This has been fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> Louise, my pleasure. And again, thanks for inviting me. And, and I need to go back, and you mentioned his first two or three albums. I need to go back and listen to them because I couldn't rank them because I need to hear them again. And it's been decades since I have, and that's a disservice to me. I need to go back and listen to them. I'd love yeah. to. Well, certainly on Home is Where the Heart Is, his cover of Paul McCartney's Tomorrow, I rate that as one of my top three favourite David recordings of all time. And McCartney said that with that recording, David had taken the song to its true potential. Yeah, if you play that back-to-back with McCartney's original from the Wings Wildlife album, you would not recognize the song. See, I'll have to listen to that too. So now, yeah. I don't even think I knew he wrote a song called Tomorrow. So now he's, Paul has Yesterday, Tomorrow. Did he ever write a song <laughs> called Today? Holy through thread, Batman. I mean, did you not know? Did you not put that together? I didn't yeah. know. Yeah, Yesterday, and then whatever. I'm sure that yeah. was not unintentional. I'm sure Paul meant to do that, I guess. Brad? It's wonderful to, to have met you. Thanks, Louise. Bye-bye, all. Well, thanks to Brad for his time today. In the accompanying show notes, you will find the links to where you can find Brad and his exclusive interviews. And, as promised, here is his conversation from 1975 with David in Houston. Thank you for listening. That was quite a treat. They were, they were really fine. They were really fine musicians. They one thing you're here with the, the a la Ringo Starr promotion and picture at the, oh, in, Ringo Starr yeah well on, on his uh, well it wasn't actually Ringo it wasn't as a cover it was one of the illustrations that Scott Williams did oh this the original title of this album I think it's called The Rise Fall of Jasmine's Night which was one of my aliases on the road is that right so when I found out RCA had an album out 
um, called The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, mm -hmm. which was a, a David Bowie album. I uh, quickly changed the title because I had to climb the heart of it. We don't want the David Bowie, huh? <laughs> you don't want the David Bowie? Uh -huh. Since you were saying you're changing the Why name. does my hair look like David Bowie? It has a, right now it has well, a I just woke up not too long ago, so... <laughs> does it? It rides to it, David Bowie. Uh, Ron Wood. But still, they're all great people. Yeah, well... I'm not trying to look like my favorite rock and roll star from... David Bowie is not him anyway. He doesn't know who is. Black or white. Yeah. Favorite rock and roll star? Um, that's really a terrible question. I, could, I couldn't possibly... I wouldn't have asked it if you hadn't <laughs> led me into it. <laughs> you realize that. Who's my favorite rock and roll star? Well, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just too close to being an who do you Who do you listen to? I mean, like... I listen to lots of the books. No one really in particular. Any direction? I mean, did, did you have a... Well, you know, I was, like, most influenced by Southern California music. Yeah. So, if I listen to anybody, it's usually old albums, you know. I do feel it, Bruce. And, uh, just call me up. Call me up and found out I was going in the studio and said, I'd known him around, you know. Not real well, but known him. I need a job. I don't think it was that, but he was just working. You're not at work, I'm not. No, he's not. He's not hurting. He just called me up and said, listen, you know, you shouldn't go in alone. And let me fall by. And I said, okay, I don't... I don't want to sign any contracts with you, you know. I said, they signed me to produce myself. And at this point, that's what's happening until something else happens. Now that's, that in itself is quite a departure for you. Yeah, right. You well, really it is, control. but it's it's not. Uh, I mean, I was actually, even though none of the stuff was really released, one album was released. I don't know if it was released here, but um, that I produced. And I've been sort of doing some things here and there. I like recording. Um, somebody else. I like to record anonymously, yeah. you know, almost like an alter ego kind of situation. And uh, I plan on going back and doing some more of that. At any rate, they, they wanted me to produce myself. He came in and um, I had most of the tunes. I had all but, I think, two of the songs when he came in. And I, I think I had all but one, which is the song that he gave me and he wrote on the album. Was he the only other writer? Was the rest all your material? No, uh-uh. Um, a couple of writers. I wrote, I think, half of them. Five of them, I think so. I think mine. Um, Ned Doheny wrote the single, um, Get It Off the Love. We're playing that. I'm from KUHF. It's the University of Houston, Public Radio. We're playing yeah. that. <laughs> all right. That's a, that's a good record. I like, I like yeah. that record. I like the song. He does it, actually, I think, better than I do, though. I haven't heard uh, Johnny uh, Rivers did it. He did? Uh, yeah, about, like, about a year ago in Atlantic. And it's uh, fairly decent years, I think. It's, well, it's good. I haven't heard Donnie's version. He's never cut it. He plays it a lot. That's why I haven't. Sits around. He's never cut the record. Actually, I think, I think he's the only guy, uh, other person that has cut it, Johnny Rivers. Somebody else somebody else did cut it, and they released it as a B-side. Was, I think his name is, he's on RCA, something, I want to say Jan Michael Vincent, but it's one of those mm -hmm. triple names, I don't know what the rest Michael and, Stephen Michael Schwartz, that's, that's it. it, I've got it, that's, that's it, that's right. Um, he got it too, and I thought he made a terrible record. I like the, the sound on it, your, your vocal's kind of in the middle, it's kind of, yeah. what did you do, kind of phase? Uh, kind of, yeah, I did, okay. I a little sweat kind of yeah. too, in the, in the bridge also. I put a delta T on it. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a space center. You did the strength on that too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, always had a the, the desire to do that. Yeah. Uh, I just never really had the guts to do it because I never thought I write licks and things like that. I don't know how to write string parts. So I just sat down with John Holmes, who's a piano player, played him a couple of licks. He wrote the notes. Yeah, it's kind of R&B. That's the kind of strings I could write. Yeah. Kind of like licks, like guitar licks. Strings are always used as pads, and I, I like to hear them. Really good arrangers can make them equally as important on a record. I think the most important thing is that if it's an artist, is a singer, whoever that featured artist is, and that the vocal will be there. Yeah. You know, you, you hear the words, you understand what what's going on. That song's got is so wordy that it's real difficult for people to understand. All. What's what's that mean? Yeah. I don't know. At any rate. I think it's a good record. I think the strings on it are, are good. Are an intro, good, yeah, yeah. An intro, it's like I started with a rhythm track of about four or five people, and I started adding things in mm-hmm. on that record. Most of the rest of the things, basically, are not too many overdubs. They're all, all cut along. Yeah. That record was something I did. And also, I wrote the songs. I did the same thing. We did like an evening. It took about five hours to do the background vocals. You know, when we last time you were saying, I'm not doing what I want to do, mm-hmm. I'm not doing what I want to That's do. That's true, I wasn't. And now you think you are? Do you feel like you are? This is just a promotional tour for right. you. But are you going to get back on the road? No. Not going to do it. It's going to be a recording artist. Well, I won't say I'll never do it. It's not just. For a while. Yeah, not for a while. Does the England thing have anything to do with it? Too? No, a little bit, more than that. I've made up my mind 95%. I've made up my mind completely. You know, it just was another reason for me not to. And it, if I went back and did it now, the same people would come and listen, or not to listen, but to do whatever. And it would not be. You know, you go out and you do that, and you do those old songs. I couldn't go out and do those old songs, you know, because they weren't me. They weren't representing me. You know? I just can't make that kind of a compromise. I'd have to go out and do new material. Yeah. And material they haven't heard. Yeah. So they come and listen, and you, I'd be breaking in a new album. No one's heard any of the songs. It wouldn't be successful. You'd be there in Denham and study your white album. No, no. Probably. Uh, telephone? Yeah. Hang on one second. No. I mean, that's not the point. It wouldn't be what I would look like so much. I mean, I. Well, there, there's I, even a feel, though, in what you wear, it seems like. Yeah, it, I mean, I, it certainly wouldn't be what I used to wear, but um, I think that stage is stage, and, you know. I can wear this and I can feel comfortable. And I certainly want to feel comfortable there too, but um, hang on. I think stage is something that it should be that, you know. I mean, it is supposed to be bigger than what I wear. I wanted to ask you, how did that thing with Phil Austin come about on the album? Well, it's, I left it for last. It's something that I, I needed in the context of the story. To go from one thing to another, and I called Phil um, a few days before we uh, went and did it, and told him what I wanted to do, and told him to explain the concept of the album to him, and what it what it was. I said, Dad, why don't you just come by late on Friday night when I'm finishing up? And I finished. We did some backing vocals and things. Phil came came up and uh, must have been two in the morning. I've been working since twelve, mm-hmm. so 
14 hours worth, I was just delirious. Mm -hmm. And we went in the other studio, and I got real drunk. We took, wrote down specific things like, there are a couple of specific lines in, in that, that he had on a piece of paper, and a couple that I had given him a couple of ideas that he would gotten. We just talked about what, what it should be, how long it should be, um, what I wanted, all the things specifically I wanted to get across. And uh, we did it in one take. The notes are good, liner notes. I mean, it, you know, the, did you say that something to that effect in the notes about uh, happening late? I, I don't know, it just sounds familiar. Happening late? Or something. I yeah, know. oh, I was just, delirious. Yeah. yeah. By the time I got, I got into uh, doing it, I was, I was literally lying down on the floor of Studio A at RCA with the microphone over okay. here. <laughs> yeah, with a bottle of cheap wine, 79 cent wine. This is what I was telling him we were, you know, when we were out about, uh, uh, bit about Austin, the paper, and how, uh, this pull the paper and die itty. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's something like, uh, what is the concept? What, what was the concept of the album? The way I read it is something about loosely the rise and fall of rock songs. That basically is. Of anybody who lives, I lived, I think, what personification of the American dream is yeah. today. You know, I mean, Everybody, small town boy, lower middle class becoming the, the focal point of all that teenage, adolescent, um, emotional... Hyperdrive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all that energy and being in something that, being caught up in it so much that you're almost smothered by it, you know, that you cut off all personal relationships and it really is fact that you lose yourself, you know, um, relationships mostly, and you lose touch with who you are, and it, emotionally, it was more like um, a dream, you know, on my part, I mean, I, a lot of it parallels with my life, I mean, there are things in there subtly that nobody else is going to know about other than me, you know, or experiences that I went through, I mean, people are saying to me, I'm getting, you know, a variety of reactions to it. Some are saying, well, um, I got one yesterday. Uh, a little pessimistic, isn't it? Like, I'm looking forward to falling. Or, um, I never caught the fall. Or, are you anticipating, are you anticipating it? Or, I, I got that it was real. One girl in Boston was really an intellectual, that was working on being an intellectual sitting there. You know, with their glasses and yeah. it's saying, found it to be a very bitter album. <laughs> I mean, bitter, bitter. <laughs> found me very bitter, and I said... And she enunciated that. that yes, that's bitter. exactly what she said, bitter. And I said, bitter, bitter batter, bitter batter, <laughs> resin. You know, I broke into my Broadway review, and uh, I said, you know, listen, it's all your interpretation. I said, I'm glad it moved you. I'm glad that... Even if it was negatively, I'm glad it moved me. I'm glad it got you to there. You know, I mean, she was very moved by it. I could tell she was, you know, you know, it sounds like you had an awful affair. It sounds like, you know, you hate all of this, you know, you're... Anyway, it was just, it was over-analyzing something, you know, I and mean, getting into something, analyzing every little bit, you know. I mean, I just went and did it. That's all. I'm just, it's an LP. It's going to go down in history as LP. So it's not worth getting yourself upset about. It's not worth, you know, 
It's not worth spending that much time about it. I mean, if you dig it, if it gets you high, great. If it does it for you. I mean, it did it for me doing it. I loved doing it. I had fun. I played with a lot of my friends, a lot of people I liked playing with, people I always wanted to play with. And it, it was great. You know? There's quite a who's who of people behind you. Yeah, but not, not really a, yeah, right. Not really the usual L.A. clique of players, you know? I mean, there's... No, there's no Jim Keltner. Jim's on it. Jim's on it. He's on it, <laughs> He's on it as a studio <laughs> player, as opposed to... <laughs> Well, then it almost was. If you did Hal Blaine, it was <laughs> No, Hal Blaine was not. It's not that kind of a click album that Larry had. Larry's not on it either. No. <laughs> you want to... I It has... I think that it, it has really some fine moments on it. And I think there are moments I'm going to listen to years from now and still like it. You know, and that's important for me. It's an album that I think is the first one that basically is representative of me, where I was at the time I made the album. I'm not there now. I needed to put, I needed to say something about what that was I just went through, you know. If I was going to make records again and I made that decision that I wanted to, and I accepted that responsibility, you know, I'm going to make records again. So, to explain in, in short. No, I have a drink. Thank you. How about acting? Are you going to go back into that in any form? Anything that works? I'm not going to work. I may act again, but I don't want to just work. I don't need to do that. I need the money. And actors that work to work, um, you can just go and act if you want to act in a workshop or something like that, if you really just look at it. Anybody send you any scripts to you? Oh, all the time. I get book scripts. Most of it, to be honest with you, there's a real sea of mediocrity out there. Yeah, I mean, well, look at the television. Look at the films that you see. I mean, can you believe some of the films they make? They put a million, two to two million dollars into that. I mean, I, I can't believe it. And now that the demand for television films has really taken over, too. The two new things in television have been the, the rock concert midnight type shows mm -hmm. and then the, the main that successful and not that successful no. you say mm -hmm. they were i guess at the they were at the beginning they were at the beginning specials trying to go to mor to catch the carson crowd now that's right the helen ready leftovers well they're not that successful contrary to what you may have been hyped on and i was too in the beginning i thought they were their ratings did you ever do any of those never i have been uh, lying low for that I haven't worked at all other than this album. I did nothing for about a year and a half. I stopped touring. I didn't do any photos. I didn't do any interviews. I didn't do any recording. I didn't do any television. I didn't do any films. Why? Uh, I needed time to reevaluate what I wanted to do. Um, I needed time to just think about. worth investing my energies and my time in trying to make another record. I wanted to, but I needed a, I need support. I need support from a record company that saw me as something else other than what I was. And that's why I signed with RCA. Well, didn't you need, didn't during that time of thinking you think, I'm awfully young to need this much time to evaluate what's going on. Of course, you'd have a lot. You know, I mean, it's not a question of chronologically saying, well, I'm only 25, so, I mean, a lot went down in the last five years, and 
I lost touch with a lot of friends, a lot of people. I lost touch with myself, you know. And uh, I needed that much time. I just needed to take it. When I before I went on my last tour, I said a lot of people said, "Oh, he's retiring." I said, "I'm going to stop working for a while." Because I I don't know where I want to go, but I just know I don't want to be here anymore. The only way to do that is to stop, stop doing everything, and just reevaluate your life, you know, as a human being, as an artist. How and where did you spend most of your time? Uh, it's, it's still healthy. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello. Hey. Well, uh, oh, I just ripped myself up and come like a fat. Yeah, aren't I, though? Same old wit, you know. Porque, um, porque una, una más, uh, un postcard. Uh, I figured as much. I'll bet it was. <laughs> I'll bet it was. It was real fun. Well, listen, we're doing the shrimp shuffle here in Houston. Seems to be... Uh, yeah, Texas is a big place. Seems good. Seems good. Um, yeah, Paul's out here. Something called Dreeze and take care of it. Call Dreeze and take care of it. <laughs> and, and take care of it, yeah. He doesn't know what you're talking about. Dennis. Dennis. I guess we are. Help us. Oh, hi. How are you doing? Okay. I'm just checking. This is so nice. Well, uh, I'm in the middle of doing a, a little uh, interview or two. I guess that's what we would call it. Uh, listen, it's always a pleasure to hear your voice from far away. Could you? Yeah, just a couple of your um, late evening jokes, a little humor. The road needs a little humor every now and then. How, how are things in uh, sunny, beautiful California? <laughs> yeah. I bet R.C. has a real chuckle at this time, isn't it? Come on, stop Bruce Johnson. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet they are. Are they, uh... You know, you and I ought to make rock and roll records. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. yeah, I think, uh, I think, um, I think I'll be back in about a week or so, and, uh, it should take me another week to, uh, thaw out, and after that, <laughs> no, no, seriously, I got a couple of songs that I want, I want you to hear, maybe you'd like to record them on your next album, maybe you'd like, breaking down again to Joe Cocker, no, I think you should he is? Okay, we'll play it for him. Out of sight. Okay, well, I'm, I remember. If you want to wait, I'll be out there in a week. Okay. I also got a couple of tunes that um, I've got unfinished that maybe you want to sit down and we'll finish them. You have enough? Great. Well, all right. I'm, you did. TX? Huh, fine. A used one. A new one or a used one? A new one. Sprung for it, eh? Big, big of you, lad. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I figured out what was wrong with my Sony. I got it fixed. There was a little wire that was crossed. Wouldn't you know? And, uh... My house, of course, will be available for demos at any time, preferably after 2 a.m. 
and uh, <laughs> uh, we should we should do it. I'm thinking about going to Wales. Uh, there's this great studio where Ace cut their album called uh, Rockfield Studios, and it is a bitch, man. Oh, it's so it is really incredible out there. This is. I know, I know. Yeah. Called what? I'm not in love. Oh, that's, I'm not in love? Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Synthesizers, yeah. Okay, well listen. Let's, uh, well, hey man, let's start a band, huh? <laughs> great. Hey, can I say something, man? Thanks for being my friend. Yeah. yeah, listen, in a pinch, means a lot. <laughs> uh, well, Common Thief looks like the single, you know? Getting a lot of feedback on that. No. Hey, Bill Home? Bill Who? No, listen, they'll be humming your name in a week or two. Really. I promise you. Yeah. Well, I don't either. Let's do it. That's right. You will. There is no compromise in art. Always remember that. And there is no art in compromise. I'm so fucking profound, man. I mean, I gotta get out of here. Okay. I certainly don't. Okay. What is Bruce going in to cut? To... He's not. That fucker. I told him to cut it. No. That fucker. You know why? Because Beckley and I worked out an arrangement. Well, Beckley and um, me, and actually... I think we played it for Brian. He lost it. I mean, he couldn't deal with it. He couldn't handle it. But he, but um, Ricky Fatar and me and Jerry sat around and we got an arrangement on it. And he played it for Carl. And Carl really liked it. He said, Jesus, man, you know. I, uh, it would be real low. He sure does. He's really a good player, too. I, I'm going to call him. Real good. He's real. He sings his ass off. He, um... He wrote Common Thief on my album. It's real funky, you know, he writes real funky too. He's gonna take that, uh, the song that we wrote together and take it over to Joe Cocker and he's looking for some songs and play it for him. Scott Cocker's looking for songs and wine, not necessarily in that order. Definitely not in that order. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway. He's good. He's good playing the next album too, I think. I like Perny with this. He's a good guy, he really cares. What's in the future? You're looking, you know, you're going to do another album? Uh, I'm looking to get a group sort of together, but kind of like a unit, you know, so to parallel it with somebody would be kind of unfair, but kind of like what Rod Stewart and the Faces had had, where he was part of the group, but he was also a solo artist, you know? I'd like to get like a basic nucleus, not make those kind of records, the same kind of records, but have that kind of situation where I, Everybody in the group can step out and make their own records, and everybody in the group can be part of that group and will be contributing to the group, you know? Um, I've got some friends that are into doing that, I think. 
I'm gonna go home, go out and feel it out. I haven't been in LA in so long. It's ridiculous, you know. I mean, I feel like I'm gonna be visiting there too. You mentioned Sunshine. Is that a club or a studio? Sundance. 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 It's a funky old cowboy bar where I went out way where you wouldn't be seen. That's exactly it. Go out and play. And uh, I went out and did it one night. Me and Bill was playing out there. Yeah. A couple of guys got real drunk. They were playing out there. The tubes did. They're from Frisco. They just got a new AM album out. They dressed up as a cowboy band. Somebody Heifer in the you know cowboy band. You had the play the play play the Palomino. You know, as a different band. You know, that's great. They won the hoot hoot night, whatever they have. Like you know, it was supposed to try to do it, you know. Yeah, but I like that's this girl I was in my class at college. I can't believe it. And she's here? She's beautiful. Well, bring her in. Where is she? And we were in the same class. Where is she? I love her. Anybody who went to Sarah Lawrence is okay. Is that right with you? Okay. Wait, wait, wait. I have something else to tell you. Any friend of yours? I have something else to tell you. Okay. Well, good. Good for him. Tell him I'm glad he's here and give him a drink and tell him to sit down, you know. What, what are you What are you saying to me? Well, yeah. he, uh, he he has to go to uh, something else later, so whenever he gets through, well, you can talk to him. I can talk with him. I can talk with him any time. Just okay. whenever he feels like coming in. Can I, can I, sure, that's something. Let me preempt you right now. Oh, for sure. Do you mind if I sit in one? Yeah, well, don't you know, know, don't don't know, 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 anybody who knows Larry Nassau's name can't be on the table. Well, I mean, Jim Blaine. How Gordon? How Gordon? Yeah, Gordon. Yes, yeah. How? How? He's a good guy. A real good player. Gordon. Gordon. Oh, I, Gordon has such a fine history of, of sessions. Yeah. And I mean, he's really fine. Did you? You know, one he thing. He played on the album. Around. Larry, they're done. Sit down. He didn't show up. Is that right? Yeah. Well then, sit down and sit down and relax. If you want to talk about anything else, feel free. You know. Sitting there smoking like a, it's a little uptight. Couldn't believe it. I wouldn't give them an answer they wanted. 
I give an answer that I felt was honest, and I'd answer them, and they'd end up writing something that, that they wanted. They wanted to write. That, you, that they thought the kids wanted to hear. Exactly. In other words, I said no. Exactly. That's exactly what ended up happening. I could I couldn't say anything. What are you doing there? I'm here to get laid. They'd write. He's here because he wants to meet his. He likes girls with blue eyes. Right. That's exactly what it ended up being. What was that? That's possible. What What was that? Well, he wanted to talk to you alone. I said hello to him and turned around and walked out. He said, no, that's all right. I had no chance to introduce you. Well, when someone says hello to you, you say hello. I mean, even if you don't get introduced. He's fine. Well, I said it a couple of times. I, I mean, that was a strange display of um, neuroses. You know? I, I don't know the guy, but what is the... Uh, come in and meet everybody and sit down and, I mean, what, is he not going to talk to these guys because they happen to be in the same field doing the same thing? I mean, yeah. So as to smooth things over, though, I think I'm going to bow out. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that you guys shouldn't do that or, I mean, if he wants to do that, we'll, we'll do yeah, it. The I, point is, I mean, he couldn't sit down and say, well, I'd listen, I'd like to do it alone. Yeah. And he had to go in the other room. What is that? He always has some personal energy with you. Is that I'll right? put it on the line. Let me put it on the line. Are you serious? Because I don't want you to be. Bob? And he said that he had a situation before that didn't work out. Uh, okay? Bob said that? So, it has nothing to do with you, Go David. Go on in there and work it out with me. So, so, you work it out, but he's willing to wait for you, David, and he wants well, to talk to you. Well, fine. So, come on in there. All right. So, Larry, you gotta go. Yeah, through, I am. You know, I am. I after he's talked to David, I would prefer it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. 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 Okay, if we could just keep it down. <laughs> we just, yeah, keep it down for a second, and we'll, or maybe close that door so I can do this without the entire party getting in. Rowan? I hope. Okay. Okay, hit it. Hi, tuners. I'm David Cassidy, and you're tuned into the afternoon easy contemporary sounds of KUHF with Brad Davis. Hi, this is David Cassidy, and here's my latest single, Get It Up For Love, on KUHF with Brad Davis. Hard to say just what 
Let it 